The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. Scream King Podcast. This is Max George. And this is Nathaniel Darkish. No podcast can continue to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. <laughs> Maniacal laugh. Oh, goodness. If you know from just that statement what we're talking about today, I give you like 500 horror points. Yeah, Haunting of Hill House. Or I thought it was the Hill House Haunting for a good while. Well, that's because you don't pay attention. Um, yes, partially so. <laughs> <laughs> but this is our first podcast of 2019, which is kind of exciting. Yes, and long overdue, let's be real. Oh, holidays are an own horror story. That's very true. Okay, so Haunting of Hill House. Yes, um, so, fantastic. Uh, yes, and so obviously we're going to talk about the Netflix series which was, of course, run by Mike Flanagan as showrunner slash main director. But we're also going to talk about everything else Haunting of Hill House because it's something that I don't ever want to shut up about because Haunting of Hill House is one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors. And yeah. And let's be clear that when we say we are going to talk about everything else, we mean that you are, because I am dumb and have only watched the Netflix adaptation, so I will be joining our listeners on this horror journey of a lifetime. And to be clear, adaptation is probably the wrong word, <laughs> as you I, will soon learn. I feel like you have some statements you want to, to dive into, so I will not withhold your desire to do that. Okay, well, so let's talk about The Haunting of Hill House. Okay, so The Haunting of Hill House is a novel written in 1959 by the impeccable, amazing, incomparable Shirley Jackson. Hey, look, there's the name Shirley. That's not a coincidence. So Shirley Jackson... I'm just going to give a little bit about her before I launch into her very, very awesome book that warrants all of the illustrious praise that it receives from people like Neil Gaiman and Stephen King. But Shirley Jackson is, in my opinion, one of the greatest writers of all time. She is a brilliant writer um, of horror and a lot of like psychological fiction. Um, there's a lot of mental illness in her work. There's a lot of mystery and, and intrigue. And the way that she writes is just, it's something else, guys. It's, she is able to inject her, her prose with this, like, beautiful, compelling language that's also very, like, simple. It's not, like, overdone and flowery. She, she gets her point across. Her dialogue is perfect. Her characterization is brilliant. Most of her books are pretty uh, pretty quick reads. Haunting of Hill House is, is about 250 pages long. That's kind of typical for a lot of her books. 
And regardless, she just jam-packs him full of awesomeness. So Haunting of Hill House is probably her most well-known work. Probably second most well-known would be We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is my personal favorite by her, but Hill House is a close second. This might be a stupid question, Nathaniel, but is she still alive? Is she kind of a modern author? No, so so she was uh, mostly present in like the 50s. Uh, and then she died in 1965. So she's been out of the picture for a while. Unfortunately, the world is a less rich place because of that. Because let's be real. I mean, two of her books are just two of the greatest books ever written ever by anybody. So you are like, fangirling hard right now. Well, I stand by that because Shirley Jackson <laughs> is like who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> Not S- Stephen King. Who are you? And what have you done with Nathaniel? Um, Shirley Jackson can write circles around Stephen King and Stephen King would tell you that. Holy shit. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever thought I would hear you say something like that. Okay. I'm listening now. She <laughs> could make Stephen King her bitch. Woof. All right. Okay. Everyone, we are praising Satan and saying vulgarities. It's going to be a good episode. (laughs) (laughs) So Shirley Jackson wrote The Haunting of Hill House. And so The Haunting of Hill House is a book that came out in 1959. Um, It was a finalist for the National Book Award when it came out. And uh, as I kind of referenced, it's, it's widely considered to be one of the greatest horror novels ever written. And, and basically, the, the idea came from Shirley Jackson hearing about a group of psychic researchers who were studying a, a, an allegedly haunted house and it kind of found out that like a lot of their reports and findings afterwards were kind of bland and uninteresting. And so she's like, well, what if I took that and like actually like did something cool with it? And so that's that's what we have. And, and so the setup is, is kind of the same sort of thing that you see and a lot of haunted house stories. And, and I mean, you'll, you'll see this mirrored in, in uh, other excellent books uh, that came out around the same time, such as Hell House by Richard Matheson, who can also write circles around Stephen King, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. But it the, the basic premise is there is a professor who hires a bunch of paranormal people, like, like people who have are known to be, have psychic abilities or have had experienced psychic phenomena to go and uh, investigate a haunted house, you know, one that's that's widely considered to be a haunted house and, and just kind of see what happens and take notes and try to, you know, investigate it for, you know, a set period of time. And basically the professor is is doing this you know is is paying all of these parapsychological people you know x amount of money for for this service of of basically coming and and agreeing to stay for this period of time so in this case there's there's four main characters so there's john montague who is the uh, college professor uh, professor i can't talk apparently um then there's eleanor vance you'll recognize that name from the series in a very different context is she related um, to Bob Vance of Vance Refrigeration? Uh, you know it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's, I that's why the, the name is familiar. <laughs> um, 
so her and and she's really the the very biggest character there um so she's very shy very like she she's lived a very reclusive life uh, she spent a lot of her life uh taking care of her very demanding mother who was like disabled and that mother has recently died and so this is kind of like her first foray out into the world as an adult like she's basically spent her whole life taking care of her mom and now she gets to do something on her own Uh, and then there is theodora who is very bohemian she's she's pretty overtly lesbian but it never actually says the word lesbian in the book well and so it she's was like back in the day when those lesbians and those gays yeah and it, yeah it was the 50s um but but she she's definitely like very openly hitting on eleanor throughout the book and so she i guess i should explain kind of their role in terms of psychic stuff uh so theodora is claims to be a psychic like she, she does that professionally while Eleanor had weird stuff happen to her as a kid where like there were like stones that fell out of the sky onto her home one time and that was well documented that kind of stuff but she hasn't like actively pursued anything occult since then and then finally the other main character is Luke Sanderson who is the person who owns Hill House he is the heir to it he is a descendant of the relatives of of Hugh Crane once again, a name that comes up later in the Netflix series, Crane. So Hugh Crane was the person who built it, owned it, and it's his family that lived there and died there. Okay, but up to this point, really the only thing that the two have is similar is there's a haunted house and the names. Yep, that's that's really it. Wow, I kind of am changing my opinion now, all of a sudden. I So I guess I'm going to uh, dig into this a little bit more when we're dealing with the series, but I think... As something independent of the book, like it, it it adapts the a lot of the tone of the book. It takes ideas from the book and names from the book, but ultimately it's it's really it's its own thing. And I'm fine with that. You just it's good to know that going in. Like I was hoping it would be a close adaptation of the book. It wasn't. But once I, I got my head around that, I loved it independently of it, but yeah, they're they're very different beasts. Hmm, interesting. But yeah, so so I guess kind of delving into the plot. So doc, Dr. Montague hires all of them. Um, I mean, Luke Sanderson's just kind of there because he owns the place and wants to like make sure nothing weird happens to his property. But yeah, he hires the the ladies to come, and just so he can like yeah, just find out what's going on. And as they're there, the house starts kind of waking up and starts getting upset with their presence there so weird stuff starts happening there's there's words that just appear on the on the walls such as eleanor come home Hold and up. does this have vincent price in it no you're thinking of uh house on haunted hill okay. house on haunted hill which is a totally different thing okay okay i was just about to have my mind blown so continue N- no, but there was a movie around the same time, but it's different. I'll I'll get into that in a second. Um, but yeah, so there, the other cast members, there's the Dudleys, who are the caretakers. That's the same. But they won't really stay on the property very long. They won't stay there at night. And so the house, basically, while they're there, weirder and weirder things start happening. There's, there's weird noises at night. 
Um, so it's just like crazy knocking on the walls and yeah, the writing, uh, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that happens. And, and usually Eleanor is experiencing stuff while the others are kind of oblivious. And then they'll come in and like find the results of that. It mostly is, is targeting Eleanor as kind of the, it's, it's victim, but not so much even a victim. It's, it's like the house has this kinship with Eleanor. It's inviting her to stay there because it because it recognizes something in her that it that it sees in itself. And I can kind of get that feel from the Netflix version. Yeah. Um, it's almost like the house is sentient in a way. Yeah, and I I would argue that the house in in the Netflix series ends up being as as it goes on kind of more and more of like hey it's just full of ghosts and the ghosts are all doing different stuff and, and they kind of work collectively but also work as individuals while i would argue that in in the book and in the at least of the first of the two films it's kind of just a evil house like there might be ghosts there but there's might not be like the haunting is the house itself. It's it's there's not so much a, an outside spectral force there. There's not a demon. There's not ghosts necessarily. Right. It's that the house is just an evil thing, which is really cool and and kind of refreshing for the genre, honestly. But yeah, so it it sees something in Eleanor and it keeps reaching out to her. And and at first it's that you know she keeps getting scared. But she starts to recognize something, some sort of kinship in in its kind of loneliness and in its, uh, I don't know, just the, the, the things that it, it's experienced. I mean, basically, the house has been full of death and grief, and, and that's what her life has been full of. And so they kind of connect with each other in this weird way. And so when the, the words Eleanor comes or come home uh, appear on the walls, it's it's like it's inviting her to join the rest of the, the house and so yeah things just get more and more heated there's a lot more tension you know there, there's consideration and debate of, of whether they should leave that kind of stuff and then finally the other characters are starting to suspect that, that eleanor is losing her mind or that maybe she's possessed or something along those lines and so dr montague and luke uh, say that she has to leave and so they force her into her car and you know tries to get her to to leave and then she 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 floors her car into a into a big tree and dies the the narrative kind of has a has a statement that then kind of makes it unclear as to you know okay is she just a disturbed woman who committed suicide or is that was her death at hell house basically because the Hill House would not let her leave because it, it needed her to stay with it. Yeah, so nothing like the Netflix series. <laughs> no, I mean, there are definitely marked similarities, but there's a lot of different stuff too. So like I said, it's it's an extremely tight book. Like it's it's very short, you know, only two hundred and fifty pages, and man, it, it is a ride. Yeah, it for sure sounds like it. And I honestly I, from hearing that and understanding that clearly the Netflix series is nothing like that, the Netflix series still is quite the ride. Like, oh yeah. Um, regardless if it's an adaptation or not, if it is still conveying that sense of excitement and kind of 
adrenaline i think it Mm -hmm. does it justice in maybe a way that's not identical to what the story is portraying but still in a very positive light yeah and and i mean there's a lot of stuff that's that that they do kind of pick straight up from the book like the the design of the house i mean it so the book talks about a lot about how like the house that none of the angles are quite like 90 degrees but like everything is off ever so slightly in a way that's very deliberate and like makes you feel a little disconcerted no matter where you're where you are in the house no matter what you're doing just simply from the way it's designed but but like a lot of the specific set pieces are the same like there's the the iron stairs in the library that ends up coming up in in a few scenes like the grounds are very similar the and 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 even just like the history of the house itself you know where it it was built for uh, you know by this rich guy for his bride and his bride didn't even see it like she died on the way there like a lot of that is referenced or or is you know directly in that netflix series but it's it's kind of to to serve different ends in in the series ultimately got you well, that's interesting. So, I mean, obviously the story is hugely popular and hugely well done where it's caused two movies, if I'm not mistaken, and then yes. this now Netflix series. So obviously this is a very beloved story in the horror world. Oh, yes. Like it. I mean, if, if you ever look up like, you know, top 10 lists of horror novels and things like that, this almost always is in the top two or three, like period. It's it's very well loved and for for good reason. Yeah. And and I guess I'll just talk a little bit about the two movies and then we can move on to the Netflix series if if that sounds good to you. I came to Hill House to find the key to another world. Both of the film versions are just called The Haunting. The first one came out in 1963 and the second one came out in 1999. The first one is a good movie. It it actually does a pretty solid job of adapting the book. It follows the story almost beat for beat. The acting is pretty solid. It's not like perfect with the acting, but it, like it's good. Uh, the special effects are pretty cool. The house looks awesome. Um, I really enjoyed watching it. I, I saw it for the first time about six months ago, and I loved it. It's definitely a an older horror movie that, in spite of being rated G of all things, oh, um, is actually like pretty chilling and just it, it works it's i mean it's black and white you know it was definitely you know competing with vincent price movies and stuff of the day but it i don't know it kind of knocks it out of the park in terms of being an adaptation from that period of time hmm. now the 1999 film is something of a giant dumpster fire that's hill house it's perfect isn't it i can't necessarily discourage one watching it because Good heaven, it is an entertaining dumpster fire. <laughs> so so it came out in 1999. It was rated PG-13. It, that one uh, stars such well-known people uh, uh, that you would know, such as Liam Neeson as the uh, professor, Catherine Zeta-Jones as Theo. Oh, boy. Owen Wilson as Luke Sanderson. Oh, boy. And, and a few other, you know, at least medium big actors they tried to turn it up a notch in terms of like things that happen. For example, there is a scene in which Owen Wilson's head gets knocked off as he's like looking in a 
I, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie, so I might get the details wrong. But if I remember right, he looks in a like up a chimney or something like that, and then like something just falls and cuts off his head. And it, I don't know, just it's it's very cheesy. It's very over the top. They they try to like make it extra scary, but it ended up just being extra silly. But I mean, it generally does follow the plot of the book. Just you know, they try to turn it up to eleven, but kind of lost all of the soul and, and horror of the book by taking out all subtlety and replacing it with, you know, what was, uh, you know, in, in that day, relatively okay special effects. Sure. Yeah. And I think that is a common problem in most horror movies nowadays is they want to do that shock factor and get lost in the woods in order to reach that, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, like I said, it's, it's one of those movies that is really, really fun to watch with like a group of people and all just mock it incessantly. But like, if you're just going to watch it on your own, don't, don't waste your time. Like you need to, to watch this with a group of people. You need to laugh at it and just have a good time. But yeah, if, if you watch it, like expecting a good horror movie, well, you'll be sorely disappointed. All right. So let's go into something that did not sorely disappoint me. We're not like any other family. We're different. Because of where we grew up. Hill House. The Netflix version of this story, which is amazing. Netflix is killing it lately with their their own produced stuff. It's amazing what they have been able to, to produce. I I have to agree. By, by and large, I've been really impressed with a lot of the horror that specifically has come from Netflix recently. And I'd say this is probably my very favorite example of it. Yeah, so for me, um, again, I had no idea the the Hill House story, so I kind of came in it blind. Um, and I, there were some points that after watching, it really kind of stuck with me. And again, I've I've mentioned several times in the podcast that those kind of horror movies that stick with you after the fact are my favorite, and really a testament to the the caliber of the show slash movie. I don't know about you, you know, as far as scare factor, did the Netflix version get under your skin at all, Nathaniel? Yeah, Um, I would say the ways that it got under my skin were kind of just in in the like honest horror of of like loss and, you know, dealing with like a death or dealing with things like suicide a lot of that is what really came through the strongest, and, and it, which I think is is exactly what they were going for. You know, a lot of the real life horror that you can experience, you know, regardless of supernatural stuff going on in Agreed. the series. A lot of that is what hit home the hardest for me, and I mean, it, I'm gonna never stop comparing stuff to our favorite movie of of last year, Hereditary, but. It's, it's it has a lot of those same kinds of, of story beats where you just got to like soak up in in the horror of just like being a family who just like found out that you know their their sister let you know killed herself things like that you know that kind of and and you just get to like go through scenes where it's not just like they find out cut away it, like there was several scenes that really let you just stew in the awfulness. And those scenes really stuck with me as powerful moments of horror. Agreed. Uh, agreed. And 
I think kind of replaying it back to the hereditary scenes is, you know, for me, a lot of the, the horror that was coming from this, I don't want to use the word adaptation anymore, uh, <laughs> but the series, you know, you finish it and you're not 100% sure if it is a true haunting if the horror lies in, you know, the dysfunctionality of this poor family, in the suicide, there's so many levels to the horror that you don't really know what to be afraid of anymore. And that, I thought, was brilliant. And coupling that with the acting of these amazing people in the series just blew my mind. Plus the cinematography and the storytelling. It, it was just so well put together and so well thought out. Not only in terms of being a good series, but also in how do we get under people's skin the best way. Mm -hmm. You know, I have siblings who are not super huge fans of horror who binge watched this in three days and had trouble sleeping at night because of the intensity that it got to. And it, I don't know, it was just Netflix did an incredible job. And also your... um. Mike Flanagan, I don't know what you want to call him, your your boyfriend maybe, but that's Stephen King, but now I feel hmm. like I don't know who your boyfriend is anymore. <laughs> He's so I I'm a I'm a huge fan of Mike Flanagan. So yeah, he's the showrunner uh for The Haunting of Hill House. And I have loved the majority of of the stuff that he's put out and have have at least been like moderately fond of of the things that I didn't love. So Yes, you know him from Oculus, which oh. is one of my favorite horror movies ever. Which um, we really need to do an episode on. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I love that movie. Um, he also did uh, Gerald's Game, also for Netflix, which is a pretty dang solid adaptation of one of Stephen King's better books, I, I would say. Um, it's not like in my very top echelon, but I'd say it's probably... I don't know, top 15 Stephen King books, which considering he has, you know, over 60 books, it's not anything to bat an eye at. Um, yeah, he did a great job at adapting that. He did the very solid um, home invasion movie Hush, which I don't usually like home invasion, but I enjoyed that movie still. Um, yeah, I mean, he he's just does good work. And so I he's someone whose career I follow very closely. Um. Maybe this would be a good time to kind of move into the series and talk about specifics. Was there a point in the series that you thought was the best? Kind of yes. like how we go into horror movies and talk about you know, the scariest part or the best part, stuff like that. What was your, I guess, favorite part of the entire series? Episode five. Same. Yeah, same. So episode five is the episode titled The Bent Neck Lady. Um, that is the episode where, well, I guess, here's our typical spoiler warning. We're going to ruin stuff. Oh, um, big time. Big yeah. time. I mean, if you've been listening to us up to this point and you are like, oh, they have spoilers. I mean, it sounds like a personal problem. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely need to watch this show. So Agreed. Just stop the podcast. Watch the show. Then come back to us. We're going to stop apologizing for spoilers is what I'm getting at. Like, yeah, no, no, I'm not apologizing. I'm just letting you know, hey, I'm going to drop like one of the biggest twists in the entire series right now. Okay, so this is where we find out that the bent neck lady that has been haunting Nell, a.k.a. Eleanor, 
you know, named after the character from the book, um, ever since childhood is herself. That's when she commits, quote, commits suicide, but doesn't actually commit suicide. Um, you find out that the house kills her. It's it's the episode where you find out all of that. And just to kind of lead into that, episode five for me was amazing as well um, because it substantially kind of was the turning point of the series. And not only was it my favorite part of the series, but also was the scariest part of the series in my mind because it had this huge pivot point where you up to this point, we're thinking that this house was haunted and it was ghosts or some sort of demons or even the classic Native American burial ground. You know, whatever you thought it was going to be, all of a sudden it switches it. And, you know, this poor character has been haunted by herself since she was a kid. And it kind of you know blows your mind and does this weird, are these ghosts that are haunting these individuals actually ghosts or are they these dark shades of a personality you know kind of the worst aspects of humans come back to haunt them in very visceral visceral ways yeah Um, i mean it it definitely makes you makes you question every other horrible thing that every other person has seen in the series to to that point because you're like yeah how much of that is themselves and how much of it is other people or other ghosts or other things you know yeah, like like when when Luke is haunted by something, is that related to him being a junkie later? Right. Is it this right. self-perpetuating thing? Which I think ties into kind of what we were talking about, how it's similar in its fear to Hereditary, where we all do terrible stuff in our lives, and sometimes those actions and those memories are the most horror-esque and most terrifying to us. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you know, what what if that could haunt you from your like from the beginning of your life? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like like do, do those things ripple backwards as well as forwards, and and how much control do you have over your life? Because yeah, like if if your life gets destroyed by what happens to you as a kid, but you're the one who did the thing basically that messed you up as a kid as an adult. I don't know. It, it, it's very, like, circular in a, like, very almost overwhelming sort of way. It, it feels hard to escape from, and I think that's part of the intensity of the horror in, in the series. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, you know, I have very few negative things to say about the series, but one of them was the first five episodes, while they're really really well developed cinematography is great the acting is incredible at times i was checking my netflix to see okay let's let's kind of get to the the action a little bit quicker here and i felt like the pacing seemed to be a little slow at some parts not all um and once episode five hit i was in it for good there was no looking back there was no you know leaving this series to be left in the graveyard of the queue of my netflix (laughs) that for me was the true moneymaker for the series of this is not your average horror show it's not your average horror series it it changed the game yeah that that episode more than anything else really made everything click together and made it made it so every time it, it did something that you that you've seen before 
everything you know that is like a little bit horror tropey, a little bit haunted house tropey, anything like that. Like it didn't matter because it had that greater level of of gravitas to it because Agreed. you knew this thing. And and I think it was brilliant to put that revelation in the smack dab in the middle of the series. Yeah, you know, so five out of ten episodes because it made you almost want to start over again and, and look at it through that lens. Which you know, which added that much power to everything that happened before, and then everything that happened afterward, like it, it just you, you, yeah, you, you couldn't stop. You had to finish it, like within 24 hours of watching that episode, because you're like, well, if I don't finish this, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> and it allows watchability again. You know, it's it's similar to shows like Game of Thrones, and I know you're not super into Game of Thrones, but once you know certain plot points, and you rewatch it you you understand the story on a deeper level and it means more to you you know the mm-hmm. second time you watch it and to me again that's another point that makes a show or a movie a series whatever you want to call it good is that you want to keep watching it yeah yeah and so and and kind of going along those lines uh something that we talked about before we started recording was how the series does a lot with with a, a mystery plot. Like you're trying to understand what's happening and why it's happening. Um, and a lot of the horror comes from that. But kind of at that midpoint of the series, a lot of the mystery is stripped away. And instead, you're just left with horror of like, okay, like, okay, now, now we have to deal with all the repercussions. Now we have a lot of the, the ingredients. Now we get to find out what this recipe really is. Agreed. Um, so should we move into our crowns and screams? Uh, I, well, I, I want to talk about a few other aspects of the show before we dug into how we would rate it. Sure. So I just kind of want to talk about like how the story is set up, just because I, th- I think it's it's fairly unique. Now, obviously, it has the past and present storylines uh, which are a big part of, of how it goes, you know, just kind of flipping back and forth between, hey, the, here's this family with, when they're all kids, and then, you know, here they are as adults dealing with a lot of the repercussions and fallout of, of the things that happened. Aspects of the story kind of get told to you in, in small chunks. It takes a long time for you to know exactly what happened to their mom, because, yeah, a lot of the stuff that, that you see when they're kids, you know, might be creepy, but it isn't like full-blown haunted house stuff yet. We've, we've talked about this before, like like with demonic possession, how there's the kind of like little precursor events, and then there's like the full-blown demonic oppression. It, it kind of mirrors that in a way. Totally. And so so a lot of the story, at least for those first five episodes, with with them being kids, yeah, you, you only see the precursor stuff, and, and, then, and then you see them as adults kind of dealing with like fallout, and you're, you're trying to understand, okay... So what happened that messed them up so bad? But I, I love how it, it combined that with also individual perspectives of characters. That, you know, episode one, it was Steven. And then yeah, Steven. episode two is Theo. And episode three is uh, Shirley. And episode... I might have mixed up Shirley and Theo's. Yeah, episode two is Shirley. Episode three is Theo. Episode four is Luke. Episode five is Nell. And... And so you get, you know, each sibling's perspective kind of all leading up to Nell's death in in very unique ways that really give you so much more information about everything. And I, I love that. 
the way that it was broken up. And then after that, you know, that very revelatory episode in the middle, it went to kind of everybody, you know, kind of, you, you got everybody's perspectives all at once. Cause, cause you then knew the characters well enough to, you know, have the rest of the story told through all of their eyes instead of just individuals. And I yeah. loved that. I think that was brilliant writing that really paid off. Agreed. So that was the big thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and again, I, I know I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but I really like how the series kind of left it to interpretation about what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there was a supernatural aspect to things, but at the same time, you, again, were a little hesitant to just dive into the supernaturality of it i don't know if that's a word i just made it up if it is yeah like like you'd, you'd spend a long a lot of time wondering like okay is nell just mentally ill is like how right, much and... of this is is mental illness or just trauma from your childhood as opposed to something actually going on in your life so for me as far as crowns go i give it a solid nine i mean it's it has some issues as far as I interpret it, but other than that, acting solid, cinematography is solid, story is solid, scares are solid. Like it's a great Netflix series if you're looking for something to watch, and I would highly recommend it, especially if you want to get into the horror scene. Yes, and and I I would have to give it a nine as well. I I it's pretty darn perfect. My biggest qualms with it, honestly, like the only thing that keeps me from giving it a 10 is the final episode kind of ends up being a little hunky-dory, everything's good. But I'm going to talk about in a second, after I talk about uh, Screams, about how maybe maybe it isn't quite as happy of an ending as everyone, as, as it, it lets you first, at, or believe it at, at first glance at least. For sure. Um, as far as Scream goes, I thought it had some really good scares, um, but it kind of came and went. It wasn't, mm-hmm. there were a few episodes that really stuck out with me, you know, episode five. I thought Theo's episode was really creepy. Um, I really liked the ending. Um, so I'm going to give it an eight. It was good. It was great, but it could have pushed it a little bit more. Same. I'm going to give it an eight. So, give us some info about the ending. What do you think? Okay, so let's kind of go over, I guess, the the main plot points, and then we'll kind of talk about how it might not be what it uh, appears to be. So, I guess the the key things are that much of the family is, well, about half of the family is ghosts stuck in the house. So, obviously, Nell is is a ghost. You know, she's the bent neck lady. She's stuck there as a result of dying there. Um, obviously the mother who, I don't know how we haven't talked about the mother at all, really, um, <laughs> probably, uh, Gugino's character. She, like, and her, her death messes up the kids for their whole lives. But yeah, she's stuck there, uh, as a ghost. And then you have the dad, uh, who dies near the end of the series. He's there as a ghost. And basically they kind of, they're, they're all stuck in the red room which is like almost like the heart of the house like the the kind of place where the the most powerful evil can happen uh for lack of better description they manage to get the rest of the family uh to escape the house and then they kind of are managed to find like happiness uh, as ghosts all together in this house because like hey like part of the family's all together again and then the rest of them have 
you know, then it kind of like cuts forward a year and you see that Luke, the junkie is, has been sober for a year now. And like, they're all having a party and everyone's reconciled with their spouses and everything is good. And a lot of the drama has been resolved. And, and so then, you know, it's, it's basically them having a, a party for Luke uh, and they have a cake and, and so, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, like, yeah, yeah, sweet, a happy ending. But the series uses the color red a great deal uh, symbolically. It's It appears in every single scene where there is a ghost or something, you know, horrible and evil, haunt, uh, some sort of haunting thing. There's there's the color red used very deliberately. And if you notice in the happy-go-lucky scene with the cake, uh, the cake is red. And like the walls are red, and it, it it's very possible that the family did not escape, and maybe this that they're all still trapped in the house, and they don't even know that they're dead. Basically, they're they're trapped in this red room, and they're stuck there forever, and and they don't even know it because because I mean like we already have established that like that room especially can can alter your perception of reality. It can make it so you seem like you're out of there make it seem like you're free and so i like that ending a lot more of of kind of interpreting that very negatively because it felt like it was to me the the happy ending almost fell out of place for all of the horror and everything else that it, it made you go through it seemed a little bit too cheery uh and it almost like seemed like the house kind of like backed off at the end it's like oh well hey we, we got one of them so we're good yeah, I can definitely see that, and I'm a big fan of kind of sad endings, so I like your interpretation a lot better than what was portrayed. Like you said, I think it fits the story much more cohesively than what we were given. To be fair, like I, I think it is actually what what was intended, that, that it, it was an ending where if you wanted a happy ending, you could look at it and see a happy ending, or if you looked a little closer, you could realize that it was actually kind of a horrible, despairing kind of ending. But it, I think it's it's one of those Mike Flanagan decided to leave it up to the audience which ending they would prefer, uh, and so you can interpret it how you will. But I'm guessing his intention was a little bit more sinister, but he kind of cut it in a way that was a little less sinister, just to appease the people who would be pissed if it actually had a just dire ending and no no potential hope for redemption. And again, I think that kind of fits the entire series a little bit more is that there's this haunting reality of our actions sometimes have very substantial effects on our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm i actually kind of blown away by that interpretation. I'm going to now need to watch the series all over again. Maybe just one other thing that I didn't love as much about the series, just in terms of maybe yeah, why I didn't give it a, a 10 for, for the crowns and stuff like that. It's just that it, it seemed to to me that, especially in the, the latter half of the series, it almost felt like it was afraid to kind of go the, the house itself is evil route. And to me, it, it kind of stuck with more like, oh, there's a whole bunch of evil, nasty ghosts and stuff. And kind of backed away from like the sinisterness of the, of the house itself. And I thought that was kind of a shame, but yeah, that's just personal preference, I think. Nah. Um, 
All right. Well, we've given it nine crowns, eight screams. Is there anything we want to mention about it before we call it quits? I just wanted to point out one little other thing. Just, I find it really funny, going back to my love of Mike Flanagan's work, that this is like the perfect distillation of, of the kind of stuff he tells. He has a lot of stories that bounce back and forth from childhood to adulthood, where something traumatic in their childhood messes up their adulthood. That's true in Oculus. That's true. I was going to say, now that you say that, it's like my mind is being blown. <laughs> that's true in uh, Gerald's game. It's 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 basically like the Mike Flanagan story, and 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 he's going to uh, directing Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining, where. The child from The Shining has all of that horrible trauma mess him up and it really ruins his life as an adult. And then he has to like learn to be like an okay person and like try to proceed forward from that in spite of all of the messed up crap that he had to deal with as a kid. So, hey, it's exactly the same thing again. So I just find that really funny. And I wanted to mention that on the podcast. Interesting. I'm now going to be jaded for the rest of my life anytime I know he is directing something. Well, I, I get excited because he does a great job with cinematography. I I mean, and a lot of the people he works with are awesome. I mean, I really like Carla Gugino, who is in a few of his works. I think she's really a, a solid actress. Um, of course, uh, Kate Siegel, who is his wife. Uh, is in all of his movies. She's like the creepy mirror lady in Oculus. She's Theo in, in this. She's the main character in Hush. So, I don't know. I, I, th- I think he, he's a, a really skilled uh, horror filmmaker who uh, who has some great people he works with. So, I, I, I'm always excited whenever I see that he's working on a project. I mean, he Oculus and Gerald's Game are some really, really good productions. Um, and mm-hmm. this is amazing. Like, he does a good job, a substantially good job. So, yeah, I'll have to kind of keep my eye out for more of his stuff. Yeah, um, really the only other things that you might have seen, I, I guess he did Ouija Origin of Evil, which I have not watched. I heard it was better than the first Ouija. So, uh, so much better than the first Ouija. Yeah, so I, I uh, need to pick that up, obviously, because I'm you know, a Flanagan fan. Um, he uh, also did fan again. I... <gasps> did I just make something up? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, he also did before I wake, which is on Netflix and that one. It was okay. It was, it was meh. Yeah, I agree. And then he did a movie called absentia, which I haven't watched yet, but I need to because like we established. Yeah. That's you... in my graveyard of movies I've never watched. So, yeah, so I guess we'll have to fix that and maybe talk more about Mike Flanagan stuff again in the future. Yeah, I do. Before we call it quits, I want to give a huge shout out to two actors in particular. Kate Siegel, who you just mentioned, who's married um, to Flanagan. Um, I thought she did brilliant. I really connected with her acting and thought she did a banging job. Um, but also little Lulu Wilson, who played young Shirley, she was in Ouija, Origin of Evil. She was in the Annabelle movie. Um, she's been in a few kind of iconic horror movies as of late. I think she's 
awesome. I think she does a really, really good job. And she's 11, and she's kind of gotten into this horror niche. Um, you know, you really only see her in these horror movies. And I'm super excited to see where she goes. I think she does an excellent, excellent job. Yeah, I mean... I, I would say, like, everyone was really good, but, yeah, she really stood out, and, and definitely Kate Siegel stood out, and, yeah. So, uh, anything else you want to say before we call it quits? No, that's it. All right, Other well, than we... freaking read the book, because it's so good, and then read everything else by her, because it's so good. One of my New Year's resolutions is to read a book a month, unlike you, who reads, like, 50 books a month. Um, that's not an exaggeration i read over 400 books last year yeah you're insane nathaniel i do want to say that both you and i part of our new year's resolutions is to be much more committed to the podcast and hopefully we'll get some more episodes out routinely uh we both have kids we both have full-time jobs life's crazy we want to try and produce as much as we can and 2019 i think is gonna definitely be a better year for the podcast Yes, I'm. I'm hoping we can do like maybe every other week. Agreed. Um, which, I mean, we're not too far from that already in the year. So let's let's see what we can do. All right. Well, again, um, if you want to reach out to us or give us any recommendations on the podcast or give us some ideas of some movies that we want to do, my father has given us a bajillion ideas for movies, and none of them are technically considered actual horror. So he has a lot of opinions about things. <laughs> but if you are not my dad and want to keep giving us recommendations, <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Search Scream Kings. You'll find us pretty easy. Um, our handle, though, usually is Scream Kings Pod. Yeah, so that's our handle on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we can also be emailed at Gmail, um, Scream Kings Podcast at gmail.com, or just type in Scream Kings Podcast on Facebook. We don't really update that one as much, but still, we I, I will respond because it will notify my phone. My individual uh, Twitter handle is at NJDarkish. And mine, my individual Twitter handle is at Crowley, C-R-O-W-L-E-Y, which is an homage to one of my favorite occultists, Aleister Crowley. Um, and then Finn, which is kind of an abbreviation of Phoenix, P-H-O-E-N. So at Crowley Finn. Okay, and then I guess since it's come up relative to the discussion, you can also check out all of the gazillion books I read uh, on Goodreads. If you just type in Nathaniel Darkish uh, and people, I'm sure I'll come up. And then you can see the ridiculous onslaught of, of books, many of which are horror that I read and find out my opinions of them. Um, and again, we're going to try and really get more active on our social media pages, specifically Twitter. So if you interact with us on the Twitter, um, definitely expect a lot more coming from the Scream Kings, not only from our main account, but also our individuals. We just want to interact with you guys is what it boils down to. And I don't know about you, Nathaniel, but I would love to maybe set up a poll on Twitter about, you know, here are four movies we're thinking about doing. What do our listeners want to hear us review? I think that would be an awesome move forward for 2019. Yes. And will help motivate us to actually record. <laughs> so until then, friends, stay spooky. Stay spooky.